Welcome to the Friday Night Clive podcast with me, Clive Payne. In this podcast, we look back at the amazing charities, organisations and people we have chatted to over the past few months, all of whom have interesting and important stories to tell. Now, we don't generally talk about dying and grief, but we've just seen an outpouring of grief at the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Why is it then that we're able to show our grief after the death of someone whom we ostensibly don't really know personally? Now, we're not known for showing our emotions, even when it's a close family member or friend. So how should we grieve and how should we teach our children to grieve? Is there a right and a wrong way or is it very bespoke towards the individual? Joining me on the line is Jane Murray, who's a bereavement services manager from Marie Curie. Good evening, Jane. Hello, thank you for inviting us along. Not at all. Thank you for your time this evening. Jane, first of all, for anybody who's unfamiliar with the work of Marie Curie, I mean, you, your organisation was instrumental when my mum had her cancer, but uh, just talk oh. me through some of the things that Marie Curie does. Yes, of course. We have nine hospices throughout the UK. We're the only one in the, in the West Midlands. We're based in Solihull. We have a huge community team in the, the Marie Curie Nursing Service uh, within the community. Mm-hmm. And they tend to go into people's homes during the night and sit with the patient so that the relative carer can get some sleep. We have, we do, we're one of the leading charities doing a lot of research in end-of-life care. Um, we here we have hospice at home services we have all the professionals that you would find in a hospital occupational therapists physiotherapists complementary therapists um doctors we have three consultants here we have community consultants um so we're a very busy organisation that are providing specialist care at the end of someone's life and of course you're a charity so you don't get any state funding do you we get very little. I think we get about 20% from the state. Oh, gosh, And right. the, rest is, the rest is purely from donations from the public. Yeah. Right, yeah. So you are reliant on people le- leaving legacies in wills and, and just, you know, m- making donations, taking part in fundraising activities, for example. That's right. Very, very much so. And we also very much rely on our huge team of volunteers who do everything any role in the hospice as a volunteer very trained of course um but without our i mean here in the west midlands in our hospice we have 200 volunteers so we wouldn't function as hospices um without our marvelous team of volunteers that's right now you're uh, a bereavement services manager from marie curie so uh, i mean the title speaks for itself but can you just outline about your role and the kind of uh, things that you and your team do Yes, I have a team of qualified counsellors who work alongside me and I also have a team of volunteers that are specially trained in supportive listening skills and we provide emotional support to patients before they die and we also provide emotional support to their families and friends of all ages before the patient dies and after the patient dies and that can be one-to-one face-to-face it can be on the telephone or it can be in therapeutic groups for the children and rather than disrupt their school we 
go into the school and we will see the children in school. Most most schools are very appreciative of that and they put dedicated rooms aside for us to go in so the child can come out and have their counselling and then go back into their lessons so they're not missing huge chunks of time. And of course, losing somebody, um, you know, is, is traumatic for anybody. I think worse or more so for children, I would say. But regretfully, we're all going to lose somebody in our lives. That That, that is just the way the, in which the world turns, yeah. I'm afraid. Is there a set way that we should mourn or grieve for somebody? Because we all process death very differently. But I, I guess there isn't a textbook way of responding. But, you know... What what's the first steps that we should take when we learn that that somebody close to us has passed away? I mean, you're right. We we're all individuals, and grief is very individual. And no two people in the in the family will grieve the same. You know, if you know, even siblings who have lost their parent, you will all grieve differently. Um, and therefore, you can't prescribe what grief is going to be like. You can't say that it will last two months or three months or one year because it's going to be different for everybody. And, you know, it's all about your resilience and your coping mechanisms and whatever else you have in your life going on. The mourning period is generally that period between the person dying and the funeral taking place. I mean, we know, sadly, from the Queen dying, the public mourning period ended on Monday after the funeral, but the royal family are still in mourning until, um, I think it's the 26th mm. of... It's a further uh, seven days, you're September. right. Yeah. And whereas, you know, the grieving period can go on, as I said, it's individual, it can go on for months, it can go on, you know, for some people it will go on for years. A lot of it depends on the support a person has around them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was just going to come on to that because, you know, for somebody that, that you know, experiences loss, how can their friends, other family members offer that support to them and how should they do it? There is that, um, I think, old adage, you know, um, you know, they avoid me, they walked across the road, you know, and, and that actually happens. You know, I day every day I talk to people who have who someone close to them has died and they will say, I, I saw my best friend in the supermarket and I know she saw me but she went down the other aisle. You know, people do avoid you and it's not because they don't care, it's because they don't know what to say. And they don't want to be the one to upset you, particularly if you look okay on the outside. They don't want to be the one to upset you. Mm. I would say the most important thing you can do for anyone is to be there, whether that's in person or to show that you're there by, you know, sending a text message. You know, I'm thinking of you at this difficult time. Um, People say things with the best intentions. You know, if you need me, I'm, I'm at the end of the phone. You know, I'm, I'll always be here for you if you need me. Um, give me a call. When you're that person who is bereaved, you are not going to pick up that phone and say, I need to talk. It's so hard mm. to do that. You know, so rather, I think rather it's you saying, what I'm going to do every evening at six o'clock, just before you have your tea, I'm going to call you for a chat. Or every Tuesday when I'm on my way to Tesco's, have your shopping list ready and I'll take do your shopping for you or I'll take you with me. Or, you know, be the friend that says, you know, I'll come round every evening and I'll take the dog for a walk. Practical help, particularly that period between the death and the funeral, is invaluable. Um, you know, so, of course, we 
you like to send condolence cards and we like to send flowers but actually um you know they're going to have a lot of visitors during that time put a care package of food on the doorstep you know tea bags coffee biscuits because they're going to have a lot of people visiting mm-hmm. they'll be writing a lot of letters and sending a lot of cards so what about a book of stamps you know they'll be real you know <laughs> i'll come and do your ironing for you mm-hmm. you know i'm going doing a load of laundry you know i'll come i know you're going to have a lot of people staying for you let me come and help you change the beds you know it'll be so appreciative I mean, for somebody who is experiencing uh, the loss of somebody directly, uh, and as you say, they're not necessarily going to pick up the phone and and seek that help. But if you can see that somebody really, really isn't coping or they're behaving in an irrational way because they've been traumatised by this, perhaps it might have been somebody uh, whose loss was very, very unexpected. What could you do then? Because I think with the best will in the world, offering all the things that you've said, and they're excellent suggestions and clearly work, uh, for somebody that isn't really coping at all, what can you do then? I think, you know, in a situation like that, it is being there with them in person and, you know, encouraging them to talk. If you're really concerned about them, you could signpost them to their GP. Marie Curie have a dedicated phone line for people who are bereaved, um, 0800-090-2309. It's manned seven days a week. Just give me that number again, Jane, will you? 0800 zero nine zero two three zero nine right and across the seven days there are people there who care who are trained in grief and you know being empathic and compassionate and you know i know a lot of people who would rather phone strangers like that who they know are trained in this field rather than trouble their friends and particularly troubling their family because you know that your family are grieving too you know people say to me well i know how much i'm hurting so gosh knows how much my mother's hurting you know so it sometimes it can be helpful to phone you know a, a different phone line if you're wor- if you're worried about somebody um harming themselves of course we have the samaritans that are there 24 hours a day um being along some someone in person doesn't mean you have to say something profound to them you know just simply being there and you know it might be uncomfortable for you to sit in silence but they're not going to be silent in their head they're going to be remembering you know a lot of things and just encouraging them to talk you know if you want to talk i'm here i'm with you Mm. tell me how you're feeling so that's really the the sort of journey they go on from the, the the point of losing their loved one up to the funeral um, I mean, people quite understandably get very anxious about funerals. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously because you're reliving things again on that day and you're, you're sort of revisiting that person's life through eulogies and tributes, uh, that can be quite traumatic in itself, can't it? Yes, I mean, funerals, you know, if you weren't emotional before the funeral, um, certainly the funeral is going to evoke emotion and tears and hearing all those personal messages from people and seeing all the people there paying tribute to the person who has died it can be a very terribly emotional day and but a very meaningful day as well and 
you know, for a lot of people, they, you know, these days they celebrate the life of the person. They don't see it as a funeral in the traditional way. Mm. You know, let's celebrate the life of this person. Remember them for the person they were and not the patient they, beca- they became. And um, I, I find that once that funeral is over, it's almost like people think, okay, well, you've done your grieving, the funeral's over, get on with life now. And it's usually about that time, that six to eight weeks after someone has died, that the person who is bereaved, that's when it, the impact of it really hits them. Just when everybody else has gone back to their own lives and maybe returned to work, you know, the person who's bereaved is really needing help and support and that's when they may reach out to not fa- if not family and friends that's maybe when they'll pick up the phone to our phone line and ask to talk to someone yeah, I mean, it's, you preempted that very well because I was thinking that, you know, after the funeral, as you've just said, well, well prior to that, you know, you have loads of visitors, people are ringing yeah. up, as, uh, and then all of a sudden that stops. You know, after the mm. funeral, you go back home and you're probably invariably on your own if, you, if, it, if it's a, a partner that, that you've lost. Um, and that's when that deep depression can sometimes um, sink in. But I, I guess it's therefore important for those people who have offered their time prior to the funeral to continue with that, to keep interacting yes. with that person. And it is about, you know, if you're offering, if your intention is to offer support and offer to be there for them, don't only offer it once. You know, it should be a continual process because eventually they will take you upon that they may not in those early weeks those early couple of months but they will at some point want to talk and they'll be ready to talk um so don't give up on them and as that year moves on as that and uh, things progress don't assume just by looking at them that they seem to be okay you know maybe they've returned to work or maybe they they've started going out doing their own shopping or socialising again. You know, we all tend to wear masks in public. We have different masks that we wear depending on what setting we're in. Don't assume by looking at them that they're okay because you don't know what's going on inside them unless you ask them, you know. No, that's Um, right. I was just going to say, coming up, you, you can almost predict coming up to special times of the year, like Christmas, that um, they may be a bit fragile. Um, and again, reaching out to them saying, I know this might be a difficult time of year for you. I'm thinking of you. You know, that is a real empathic thing to do. The date that I would encourage people to reach out, which is most important, is the first anniversary of the death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hear sadly, you know, from clients that they'll say, it's like everybody's forgotten them. Nobody's remembering only, you know, only close family, but nobody else is remembering them. And it isn't that they are not remembering them. It's because they look at you and see that you're okay and they don't want to be the one that now upsets you again. Um, but just think of that anniversary and saying, you know, I know next week might be difficult for you just to let you know that I'm here and I care. That will go down and that will mean a, a huge amount to that person. I mean, that that's I, I, I can offer living proof of that because my friend, she lost her father last year and she has her own family and, and children and her brother and uh, her two brothers. Um, but her mum, even to this day, just a little over 12 months on, 
it's it's still very raw for her. Um, yeah. And the first anniversary of of uh, her death, uh, of, of Kate's dad's death, was was in June of this year. Uh, and here we are at the towards the back end of September. And you know, I, I know her mum still isn't isn't right because you know they they were married since the sort of early sixties, so that's a long time. Yeah. And how can you begin to get over? the loss of your husband of 50 years in a matter of months. You know, you can't, you know. I think the struggle for the people who are bereaved is that you have to start learning how to live a very different life without that person physically in it. They're always going to be in your heart and in your memories, but learning that day-to-day living without them that is what's difficult and for some people they can't even contemplate it they can't consider a future without that person in it so you have to be very gentle and and encouraging with them Um, particularly if it's been that kind of traditional partnership where you know the man did all the finances and the woman did all the you know the household Mm -hmm. things you then find you know that maybe the woman doesn't know the bank account numbers and things like that the man doesn't know how to turn the washing machine on Mm. you know i encourage pre-death i encourage you know in a scenario like that i always encourage the patient and you know the the family you know prepare and we've i think the queen gave us a good um message in her dying when we look at her if you reflect on her last year after philip died Mm. and she started to become frail she started to get her affairs in order. She handed over all her duties gradually, didn't she, to Charles and other members of the family. She um, tidied up loose ends. She, you know, as the year went on, she started doing things. She gave William his house and, you know, invited Harry over numerous times. So she was getting her affairs in order. And the last thing she had to do was to see in the new prime minister... And she did that, and then it was, okay, now I can die now, because I've got it all sorted. Mm. Do you know, we know from last week she planned her funeral. Yes, yeah, that's right, she did. But, you know, when my dad died, which was, what, in 1995, my mum never got over that, I think it's fair to say, Mm. but she found it very difficult adjusting. Um, She got there, it took her years, it took her years, and and never a day went by without her missing him. And that was reflected in her diaries, which I found recently and started reading. Um, But I think, you know, she found a new found strength in her i think in the sense that as you just said it was very much a traditional marriage and so therefore she had to learn to pay bills and you know do all that kind of stuff around the house and you know do lots of stuff in the garden uh things that my dad would have ordinarily done and she did that very successfully for a further 10 years because she died in 2005 um but you know she suddenly became i'd say a new woman i think that's probably a bit unfair but i i there was a part of her, I think, that was hidden away through for no yeah. particular reason through most of her married life. And this person, once she'd reasserted and she did what you've just said, you sort of get, come together in your own mind about living a new kind of life yeah. without that person. And she did eventually get there to an extent. Um, mm. But 
you know, never a day went by without her, her missing my dad. Now, and we've talked here about, you know, death with adults. How do we explain death and grieving to a child? Now, I know that's a service that you provide to children in schools, as yes. you've said. But, you know, if, for example, if somebody loses, uh, you know, if a child loses their grandparent and, you know, they come home from school and a mum or dad or the responsible adult there tell has to tell them this news, um, particularly if they're quite close to that particular grandparent, how what sort of language and dialogue should we use? We encourage uh, Marie Curie that you use the correct words with children, that you don't try and soften it for them. I think the instinct as an adult is to protect children. So you want to make that breaking of bad news as gentle as you can. But you using the word, you know, they, they may well have known that granddad had been poorly and had hospital visits and things like that. So you, using the language you know that your child will understand, you know, saying, you know, that granddad was very poorly and he's been in hospital, you know, and he, he got more poorly. Um, we've heard that he has now died. So actually, use, don't be afraid to use those words, died. They will understand the concept of it. What they won't understand, particularly if they're a primary school, seven and eight and under kind of age, they won't realise the permanence of death. So they'll understand when you explain very gently that granddad has died and you won't see granddad again. Um, but we've got lots of photos and videos to watch things like that. And then all of a sudden, a few weeks later, a couple of months later, they'll say, but can we go and visit granddad? So you've explained that you, they can't, you know, granddad can't come and see them, but it's very normal and natural that they might turn around and say, but what well, can we go and see him? As a family, um, you be consistent in the language you use. So what, how have you described other people or pets that have died in your family? If you have used the word heaven or they've become a star, then all of you use that those phrases with the child don't confuse them we would say please don't you say that um you know sadly granddad's gone to sleep and he's not going to wake up again you know what you mean but for that child they're going to be they could potentially be fearful of falling asleep or you falling asleep i, I hear stories from parents who'll say well you know little freddie every you know Every night it seems I wake up and he's just staring at me in bed, frightens the life out of me. And it's because he's watching you breathing because you've said that granddad went to sleep and he never woke up again. So they're going to be afraid that, you know, someone else is not going to wake up again. If you don't explain to children in the language they'll understand what has happened, they know that something is different. They hit, they feel the emotion in the house. They hear the whispers, you know, that stop when they come in the room. So they will know something is different. And if you don't explain it to them, the only option they have is to make it up for themselves to try and make sense of it. So that's when they'll start fantasizing about things. And we wouldn't want that to happen because it can be very hard to undo those fantasy beliefs of a child rather than having the courage to be honest with them. And when it comes to the funeral, it really is about giving children the choice, you know, explaining to them um, what a funeral is, in, again, in the language they'll understand, um, and saying, 
would you like to take part in that? Would you like to come along? This is what will happen. Um, and I see adults of all ages who, when they talk about the first death that they remember, it's usually a grandparent, and they'll say, I'm still angry because I didn't know it happened. I st I'm still angry because I never, I never got to go. So yeah. it is about giving children the choice. I mean, again, going back to the Queen's funeral, I'm sure her, her great-grandson, Edward's son, who was there, the 14-year-old at mm. the state laying in, um, he would, it all would have been explained to him and he would have been given a choice about being there, you know, and particularly for him being in the public eye. Sure. I mean, there was such an outpouring of grief when the Queen died. Um, why do you think that was? Um, we've just said that we're not very keen to, or, you know, or we don't know how to talk about death, you know, within our families. I, I think you, you mentioned earlier on when, uh, at the introduction, you know, the stiff British upper lip, and I think a lot of it is, you know, day to day, we, we don't show our emotions, in, certainly in England, I think it's different in areas of Scotland and Wales, um, but, you know, certainly in England, we don't show our emotions, certainly in public, uh, and w when it's um, a, something, something like the Queen or Princess Diana, when that happened, it almost gives permission, it's acceptable by the society for people to be sad and to cry and to queue. Um, people don't question it. They don't look at you funny. They don't question it. They don't tease you about it because everyone around you is doing it. And so it's quite a cathartic experience. And yes, you may be, some of last week's might have been about being sad that our figurehead had died and being part of history by queuing up. But a lot of it would have been about your personal grief re-emerging from deaths that you have experienced. And the, you know, your, your grief was about remembering what it was like for you then and it's reawoken in you. Or for some people, maybe when they lost someone close to them, they didn't grieve, they didn't have anyone to talk to, and now this is unresolved grief come out. But, you know, it, it was that thing about having permission to do it, it was acceptable to do it. But I noticed as soon as Tuesday came, everything shifted back to the way it was. Mm. You know, there's no emotion around anymore, you know, people are carrying on, they're not sympathetic to each other. Yeah, that that's it's interesting you say that because um, I went to um, a Queen's Jubilee Honours presentation afternoon at the Council House in Birmingham on mm. uh, Tuesday afternoon, and it, you're right; it was almost as if you know nothing had happened. Although the Lord Lieutenant, being the uh, Sovereign's representative, yeah. uh, was still required to observe mourning, so uh, he presided over the formalities and then slipped away. Um, but it was, it was very strange. And I mean, you know, obviously you, you sort of have to put your posh frock on for an event like that. And I thought, well, I'm just going to dress sort of fairly, fairly conservatively because I, you know, it, it, I still felt a little bit uneasy if, if I'm honest with you. But I think that's probably just, just how I view it, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I didn't sort of, I just dressed sort of, you know, respectfully, I think, just in case. And I think a lot of people did there anyway. I did notice that. Yes. Yeah, but it is, you know, it was odd, you know, it's very palpable to me, you know, particularly Tuesday and as the week has gone on, it's like, what happened to all that emotion and that 
comforting and compassion that we witnessed last week and everybody around us. It just seems to have disappeared this week. Yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? Where can yeah. we get more information uh, from Jane and support as well? So we... I'm mentioned our phone line number um, but also our Marie Curie website if people go onto our website there's not only a lot of information about end of life care um, for you but there's a, there is a whole section wealth of information on grief and bereavement and how to support people um, there's a whole section on children there's little videos to watch that might help you with the words to use there's also information on there um, if you or a colleague at work, uh, if you have a colleague at work who has died, you know, how to support your colleagues at work, or if you're, if you're a manager, how to support a team member who's returning to work. So, you know, ha have a look on there, and also you'll be signposted to lots of other organisations outside of Marie Curie that can also help you too. Jane Murray, Bereavement Services Manager from Marie Curie in Solihull, thank you very much for talking to Friday Night Clive. That is your lot for this episode. You can catch the programme live every Friday night on Black Country Radio from 8pm. If you like our podcast, please subscribe by heading to blackcountryradio.co.uk forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. See you very soon. This is a Black Country Radio podcast presented by Clive Payne and produced by Andy Caddick.